so delighted to be joined by Professor Doug Stokes. Uh, Doug is an academic and he is a professor in international security and strategy um, in the Department for Politics at the University of Exeter. Um, but we are particularly speaking to him today because he has very recently released a new book, which is called Against Decolonization, Campus Culture Wars and the Decline of the West. Uh, so right up our street in the kinds of things that we talk about on this podcast. And uh, you may have seen Doug commenting and writing about many of these issues, identity politics, freedom of speech, uh, the culture wars on campus, as he alludes to in his book. And uh, you may have even come across his Substack, which we often uh, read, and he has many interesting, insightful and important takes on this really uh, important issue shaping the public conversation at the moment. So first and foremost, thank you so much, for Doug, for joining me. Absolute pleasure. Brilliant. So we, we <coughs> published a review, actually, and I think you are aware um, of your book on our Substack. Um, but for those who haven't come across it, a book that we highly recommend, by the way. So please, everybody go out and, and purchase it, read it and share it about to all the people that you know. Let, give us just a quick rundown of your, your key thesis, your key arguments. Well, there's a number of, uh, I, I, it's quite a broad book. Uh, but what I essentially argue is that what we've seen in the wake of the George Floyd uh, killing and the kind of the cultural tumult that that threw up, we've seen uh, <clears throat> increasingly the adoption of uh, decolonizing theories and ideas, uh, not not just within the academic community, which is less problematic ultimately, but increasingly by uh, British institutions or Anglophone institutions actually, uh, and in particular UK uni uh, universities and by by various executive teams. And these have been imposed in the name of a kind of form of uh, social justice. So the, the, the official adoption of decolonial theory, post-colonial theory, and then imposed by executive teams, university executive teams, as a kind of new orthodoxy. Um, we've seen this across the, the UK university system. Uh, and this is said to be driven by, as I say, you know, social justice. So it's kind of a moral necessity to adopt these things. And so this, this obviously has incredibly uh, deep implications for academic freedom, uh, for, for learning. Um, and a lot of these ideas are quite fringe, well, hitherto quite fringe theories. And they draw on um, sort of post-colonial, but post-structural and post-modern, almost post-Marxist ideas in many senses. And so, so the book traces that. It, it, it shows how that's developed in the in the UK university system and some of the social and political implications of that for academic freedom, but also for broader, you know, our, our broader culture. It then critiques that move and critiques some of the ideas, um, and then it moves on to look at how we explain this this, this politics of wokery or the, the, the sort of the intersectional uh, intersectionism within British institutions, how we explain that. And then it, it ends with a chapter looking at geopolitics. And the argument I make in that chapter is that um, a state, a, 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 the, the national interest or how we understand ourselves as a civilization, as a people, as a kind of multiracial, multicultural society, how we understand ourselves fundamentally impacts upon the way in which we act upon the world. And human history is characterized by the rise and fall of various civilizations. 
And obviously, one of the prerequisites for some degree of civilizational competence is precisely belief in oneself. So the argument, I kind of end on a plea, but also to point something out, and that is, you know, what we have in, in the West, in the West, which is a very multiracial, multi-ethnic, very progressive in many senses, very liberal. This is not the, the norm in human history. In many ways, this is kind of almost, uh, it rests on the institutional settlement of the Second World War, the Brennan Woods institutions. But ironically, given the anti-imperialism of a lot of, a lot of decolonial uh, uh, activists, also America's military hegemony, which in some senses sort of generates global collective public goods and sets of outcomes that kind of benefit the global economy, which has also seen a massive rise in terms of human development, etc. But those things aren't natural and, and they're, they're highly contingent and they're very fragile, as we see, for example, in Israel and Hamas, as we see in Ukraine. There's no necessary reason why uh, in, interconnectivity and liberal values will prevail. They have to be understood. They have to be defended. They have to be ar argued for. And obviously, tribal, human tribalism and international and civilizational conflict tend to be the human norm. So it, the, I guess the big question really is, are we returning to that period? And, and, and it's, it's a plea really for, to, to sort of realize what we've got. These are very precious things and we throw them away at our great peril. We may think, think we're kind of cool and edgy and, you know, whoa, but, you know, we throw them away at our great peril. So, that, so that's the book, basically. But there's lots to get into there, and I think that's one of the angles that I think um, I'd really like to explore in this discussion, which is um, the the impact on, on, on geopolitics and our position in the world and our confidence. Because I guess, uh, you know, it, your background is international relations, and it's quite interesting that you're, you're, you're discussing uh, this book and I think that that is um, that particular angle to the book the campus culture wars because some people might think how are those things related actually I think it's really important how you um, articulated just there why our um, faith in our own ideals our faith in our own values actually is really important when we are standing up against uh, ideologies authoritarians across the world that are dead set on um, uh, pushing other values that are detrimental to the world so before we just get into that, I guess I think it would be just quite useful to just um, get your understanding of these terms because we do hear, so, so what is decolonization? So, because I think you know, a lot of people <laughs> historically you know, have understood it as um, the removal of a uh, colonial power from you know, the governing system of a particular nation. But the phrase or the word decolonization has taken on a different meaning. And if you could um, uh, summarize if, as best as you could, what what is post-colonial thought? What is post-structuralism? Because I still think, whilst it's been spoken about a lot, um, a lot of people still don't understand these things because these are you know, academic concepts that are not necessarily the kinds of things that we think about in everyday life, even though they're having such a big impact. Well, that's a tall order, and I don't want to bore your listeners, so I'll do my best to keep it kind of snappy and not too philosophical. Um, so. So decolonization really refers to the process in the formal sense. It refers to the formal sort of unraveling of the, of the, of the European empires in particular. Uh, although obviously they aren't the only empires in human history, although they tend to be ironically lifted up as the kind of the only empires. You know, so the only thing we ever talk about, you know, the ubiquity of the European empires, well, obviously there's huge, huge, and from the Aztecs, the Mexican, you know, 
Roman Empire, uh, African kingdoms, you know, you can, you can go through the human history. It's fascinating, fascinating stuff. So, but, but sort of decolonizing in, in the current sense in which we understand it and the way it's, it's kind of, it's, it's being adopted refers to uh, a formal process of political decolonization by the European empires post second world war, <laughs> the British and French in particular simply didn't have the wherewithal, the capacity, the military capacity, or even the financial capacity to sustain their empires across the global South, although they wanted to. Uh, so for example, in the, in the various instances where they, they attempted to hang on, so the, the Brits got heavily involved in Greece, uh, the French got very heavily involved in, in the attempted suppression of the Vietnamese nationalist insurgency in Vietnam in the 50s, and then the Americans gradually got sucked in in part of the border bipolar competition. So it, it, it's uh, decolonizing refers in the formal political sense that that process of the unraveling of, of the European empires in particular, and then the emergence of post, post-colonial states, post-colonial elites, and, yeah, and, and sort of post-colonial state formation. So, so, so that, that's, that's, that's the kind of the formal political process that took place. But I think the, the decolonizing, uh, theories that we see now are far more playful and they're, they're not as they're not interested ultimately in, in, in interrogating those historical events as such. They're kind of almost parasitic or on those events to invoke a sense of political frisson in, in, in the here and now. It's kind of like slightly, slightly edgy kind of activist type uh, theories. But they also but they draw on um, the development of post-structuralist and post-modernist and post-colonial theories in the academy. So I, this is where I, I, I don't want to turn your listeners off because I'll try and keep it fairly snappy. But the, the dominant sort of the dominant way of uh, sort of critical framework that dominated the Western Academy in the 1950s and to, towards the end of the 1960s really was, was Marxism. And Marxism itself was undergoing a process of theoretical tumult. You had kind of the, the more sort of heavy historical materialist, objectivist, modernist, rooted in a scientific method, Marxism. And you saw the high point of that was really uh, Louis Althusser in the 1950s, who was a French uh, Marxist theorist, big French Marxist theorist. He's a very important figure in, in French Marxism. And then, but there was also a cultural term in Marxist theory. Uh, and, and in particular, there was the, the Gramscian school. You'll often hear this invoked, you know, this kind of the Gramsci, the idea of, you know, the Marxist institutions, this kind of thing. And it, it essentially, it put an emphasis on, on culture. And essentially, it came from the critique. Well, why is why has there not been a socialist or communist revolution in in in, in Europe? These are the most advanced capitalist social formations, and yet we've not seen a revolutionary transformation of those into, into socialism. So the argument that the French, well, not the French, but the sort of the cultural Marxist left made made was it's because of the sort of brainwashing of people. They're brainwashed by the media and these cultural narratives. So there was an interesting fusion then where that cultural turn in, in, in Marxist theory was adopted and, 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 it, and it, in some sense it's kind of almost an anti-Marxist theory of post-structuralism began to emerge. And, and it, so the key thinkers would be people like Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, but also Edmund Said, who we'll come on to in a bit. But Derrida and Foucault were really the giants of the field. And, and, they, and their argument was it moved away from, a, a, from a, an, an objectivist position where the contradictions of capitalism was rooted in sort of objective relations of production. They were far more interested in human subjectivity and thoughts and ideas. And so the, the, the essential argument was the way we see the world, our ideas of the world 
conjure the conjure the world into being. So Foucault talked about, for example, epistemes and discourses, and he said that knowledge was fundamentally imbued with power relationships. Uh, so uh, the way you see the world on an intersubjective basis brings into being sets of power relationships. And Derrida said that all Western civilization, Western philosophy, has a, has a as a theoretical dyad at, at its heart. You sort of, there's a privileged position, so man over woman, white over black, civilized over uncivilized. And this, this, this is operative within Western civilization and Western philosophy. So you get this fusion then of the emphasis on ideas and culture, and discourses and ideology. And you also get this dyad system where you have a, a sort of a privileged and an, an underprivileged position. You can then really begin to see how that was translated into the thought of Edward Said, who was a he was a Palestinian refugee uh, ultimately, but he he lived he was francophone. He was, but he, I think he ended up in Columbia University, but he coined this idea of Orientalism, which is a very very dominant big theory in the decolonial postcolonial canon. And in in his argument about Orientalism is Orientalism was a was a discursive system, but the West inhabited when it when it operated in the Middle East and 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 that part of the world Levant etc and it and it, and it, it had an inherent to it orientalism as captured by paintings and literature and poetry this sense of the east as being mysterious but also needing the parental authority of the west so so if you if you bring it all together then you you Post-structuralism, and post-colonial theorists, they have an emphasis on ideas, uh, discourses as power mechanisms, subjectivity. They reject objectivity. They reject scientific uh, truth. They see that as ultimately scientific truth uh, for the post-structuralists in many senses is imbued. It's kind of the epitome of Western civilization, which is the epitome of this cold scientific rationality that seeks to control the world and ends ultimately uh, Leotard, for example, made the argument in the concentration camps, you know, the end point of industrial industrialization, the scientific method. So, so it, it was so the, the sort of post-colonial, decolonial is it's far more playful. It's an emphasis on culture, and it's an emphasis on the way in which our ideas and, and discourses can construct the world to create these uh, privileged and underprivileged or oppressor and oppressed groups. Uh, yeah, so 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 that's that's the theoretical system. Yeah, no, no, that that is really really useful, and I think um, it. I think the intellectual history, I think, is really important for yeah. um, particularly people working within institutions um, to understand that the ideas that they are articulating um, has roots and things that maybe they don't fully yeah. agree with, and they're yeah. essentially accepting these narratives wholesale without critically um, analysing that many of these, this isn't the liberal uh, democratic tradition, um, the, the very tradition that, um, you know, Martin Luther King and many others um, have, have um, argued for and successfully won major battles. We're talking about um, a tradition that um, is deconstructing um, many of the values that uh, we ostensibly hold dear. I guess what do you but before I, I want to continue on that particular trajectory of conversation, but before I do, I guess my instinct, instant thought as a kind of devil's advocate, I guess, would be what what do you say to those who say that look, what happened with George Floyd um was is you know was a horrific thing. And when I went to protest in BLM and on my university campuses, I was merely showing solidarity 
um, against racism. That, you know, I, I wasn't uh, uh, being a mouthpiece for uh, post-structuralism and, and uh, decolonial theory. I was just acting on my human instinct. And I guess, so, what do you say to those who might say that um, that this is not really, a, that that wasn't about what people were doing and that actually people um, that are making those arguments are essentially um, trying to reinterpret that for something that they disagree with because they disagree with it rather than actually how people were responding in that moment. Well, I would say that I think that the desire to struggle against racism is in, is is one to be supported uh, and to res be respected, and I can understand. I understand that. I mean, I uh, completely. But I think that that's a, if we look at how we have driven historically racism out, out of society, it's by the coming together of of, of people from different backgrounds, classes, social classes, and different races. I mean, look for example at the civil rights struggle. In, in America to sort, of, to sort of overthrow the racism that there or to, or to really push it back in the legislative and the social and the cultural and political sense. It involved the coming together of people, white people, black people, and people from all types of classes and backgrounds. And it was an articulation of a, a sort of a, a liberal position, really, wasn't it? It was rooted in a, in a liberalism, and that is a quality of all before the law. And also it was rooted in a kind of uh, there's lots of critiques of this, but kind of a, a form of, of of our common humanity, a form of liberal universalism, ultimately. Uh, and I and so I think the danger in the approach that the, 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 what I would say is a kind of it, well, if you if you read the, the, the critical race theorists and the, the decolonial activists, they they completely repudiate liberalism. They they, they see it as uh, as a smokescreen. Uh, and 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 there's something to be resisted, and they they explicitly are highly critical of liberalism and modernity and universalism. And my position on that would be, I think that's a very very dangerous move. It's a very dangerous theoretical move, and it's a very dangerous political move. Because I'll be brutally honest with you, I mean, you know, to pump out, to sort of to to move from that liberalism. And, and then you think about all the advances that we've had in, in Western civilization vis-a-vis -vis race relations, or at least in the Anglophone world. I mean, if you look at a lot of the data in America, there is a common narrative about uh, systemic, uh, just, you know, police are, are killing black people in huge numbers and, and all that. If you look at the, the data on it, it simply doesn't bear that out. So in 2019, I think it was like 19 unarmed black men were killed by the police. Mo most police uh, interactions with ethnic mi black minorities tend to be um, kind of gun related. So, so even, even on an empirical basis, when you look at the, the empirical data on that, uh, even, even, I mean, it's a, it's a really counterintuitive fact. I kind of cover it briefly in the book. But when I, when I saw it, I was blown away by it. But most racist incidents in America, when you could control on a per capita basis, are actually carried out by black people. If you look at, if you look at the data on it, look at the Department of Justice and the FBI data on it, hate crime is, is on a per capita basis. So, so a lot of the narrative that we've had, about this ubiquity of white racism against ethnic minorities and black minorities in particular, uh, when you look at the data, is not borne out by the data. This isn't to yeah. say that anti racism doesn't exist, by the way, or, you know... No, should, no, we... you don't have to caveat that here. No, 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 no. <laughs> but, 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 I mean, I, I'm, that's not, you know, but, it, but I'm saying it, 
how, however imperfect that liberal universalism may be, right? If you look at the advances that we've made in relation to human development, race relations, where we're at now versus where we're at 50, uh, 50 years ago, it's, it's really quite remarkable. So I, so I, and then, and then I think the other broader point from that is it, it, if we go back to what we discussed earlier, and that is the kind of contingent nature of our civilization, it's like, you know, we're, we're sat on a beach in some way, sipping a pina colada and it feels kind of nice. The sun's on us. It's kind of, yeah, we're enjoying this, right? But this, none of this is natural. And a lot of this rests on the institutional settlement and certain sets of norms that are now in a great process of profound and deep change. Think about globalization. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no I do. I just want to come, come back to some yeah. of the things that you said. Yeah. So I think, um, so just going back to when you were given the intellectual history there. So how, so how does this, why does this get adopted? Do you think within institutions and what impact do you think that this has had on institutions just to get, give people a feel of the kind of concrete ways in which these um, ideologies and these philosophies have transformed our institutions? Well, what, why? There's a whole ser series of various reasons. And I think one of the big reasons has been, uh, I watched this thing the other day, I found it absolutely fascinating look at the data on it, is social media. So s social media has really uh, put a lot of this on, and, and the business model of social media, it, it does ultimately rely on uh, a sort of clickbait type thing and in the increasingly online tribe. So I think, I think social media has been a big part of that. I think a lot of the discourse about the nature of racism in America, and America is a cultural hegemonic power, what goes on in America really inflects the, the global culture as well, as, as we know. And especially over here, we seem to sort of delight in importing America's ideas, cultural ideas into the UK, no, no matter how, uh, you know, whacked out they may be or how discordant they may, may be with UK cultural traditions. But we seem to import, especially the, the so-called progressive left, they love bringing this stuff over here, you know, and then they kind of in, impose it. So, so, but I think, so I think that social media has been a big part of it. If we look at a lot of the, um, the, the stories and the data on the ubiquity of terms like slavery and racism and uh, white privilege and all these kind of terms, they've just gone absolutely through the roof. And it's not like we suddenly had an explosion of over Nazism in, in the UK. If you look at race relations, the opinion polling, it's just got better. And, you know, it's very, very settled. It's very, you know, but so terms have gone crazy. But then I think it's also, it is this kind of, it does relate to this deeper, uh, uh kind of culture on, on, on the, on, on the West Coast, Facebook, Twitter. And then the, the ubiquity of that, and then this resistance against Trump and the really very strong Trump catastrophization, and then similarly in the UK, sort of anti-Brexit machinations. There was, a, I think, there was a sense on the part of of cultural elites and political and cultural elites in particular, and cultural institutions, very powerful cultural institutions, that the the Trump's victory in 2016 and the Brexit vote over here were nascent very strong signals of the incipient and rising extreme right populist fascism um which itself is it, it, that position which is a, u ubiquitous is deeply damaging to, to british and to, and to uk and to us politics too you think about it and m many many of these trends are actually uh what i would argue would be the the, the legitimate 
political agency of ordinary people against some of the big trends that we've seen in globalization, the outsourcing of jobs, the precarious nature of, of, of existence now, the workplace existence, um, open borders and what that means, especially with, for communities at the very low end of the social economic scale. You see what I mean? So, so, so political agency in, in terms of its expression about how it feels about those, those trends inherent to globalization are coded by political elites as expressions of fascism and, and incipient racism. And therefore, there's a, there's a, there's a, a holy mission. There's a moral mission to really put this stuff on steroids, which itself then has its own really very negative exter external feedback loops into the social cohesion. And it, it puts these, it, do you see what I mean? So is it, we're, we're having structural trends in the global economy, in, in, in the Anglophone economies in particular, in relation to globalization, which is leading to new dispensations in British politics and American politics, quite similar in some ways, the somewheres, the anywheres, the educated versus the non-educated. And what this means for the economy, what this means for, for politics of representation, and when we see political agency expressed in that, and it's coded in a certain kind of way, often in high demeaning ways, again, it's very, very damaging. So this is kind of what the book argues for as well. Uh, and what I think, and so this goes to a bigger, bigger picture here, right? And that is, I think, if I look at what you're, the work you've done and Didi you have done and others have done, I, I may be wrong, but I think a lot of it is driven by a, a, a recognition of of the importance of liberal values, and and saying and saying these are these are these are contingent values and that they should be defended, and then a fear that if we don't do that, what will the Pandora's box when it opens? What comes out of that Pandora's box? Because this is a, something that I feel very strongly about. A lot of this politics that we see, a lot of this stuff that we see. It's, it often takes place on the campus. And the campus is a very bourgeois, very safe. It's a very nice, fluffy environment. And the people there are often lovely people. But when, when it escapes the Petri dish and you get some of these really divisive ideas and they, and they cross certain types of lines, then where that goes is it's not as nice, it's not as safe, it's not as comfortable. And things can turn around really, really quickly. And so it's to fear the backlash, I think. I think that's that's another big part of it too. Mm, that's really interesting. You know, I was thinking about what you mentioned about the uh, the way in which we import American kind of racial cultures. And I think that's very true. And I think it's an argument that um, I've made um, and many others have made over the last few years. How, how, so, cause, but I think you know, listening to what you've just said and, and others that have talked about the... Um, uh, the yes. French intellectuals and post-structuralism and post-modernism, which obviously has you know, its its roots in Europe. So, in in a strange way, it's some it, it, it is a it's not really just America, and we're not just importing American cultures. We're also, um, you know, strongly influenced by these thinkers in Europe. And so, I, I guess my question is. This is a Western problem, as you identify in the book. You say the, the the decline of the West, and we don't want to say this is America, or um, you know, this is just you know the crazy French. There's actually clearly something um, in the West at the moment that is making us vulnerable to ideas that are attacking itself, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I I I, I quite that's a really good point. I think. Uh, 
I read Tom Holland's book, Dominion, a while back, and I was really struck by that, you know, in terms of um, how a lot of our deep cultural DNA in the West is is kind of it, it's it's emergent from Christianity, and I think that there 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 is a, there is an interesting point to be made here. If we look at where wokery or intersectional intersectionism has really taken off the most, it's in the often the white liberal uh, uh, U.S. and and amongst white liberals here as well, right? Both uh, Protestant countries. It has far less purchase on the continent. I mean, France, you forget about it. I mean, you know, forget about it. Even though a lot of the, the, the post-structuralists are, uh, there's, there's, there's another point, I would, there's a side point here. In some of, some of the deep ironies of, of, of France and how it can affect America. Think about this. I was doing this the other day about the Vietnamese insurgency. So Ho Chi Minh was the leader of the French Viet Cong. He was educated in France. A lot of the post-colonial leaders were educated in France. So the irony there is you've got France educated Ho Chi Minh. He went back with these secular nationalist ideas and then fought against the French insurgency, which then sucked America into France's culture war in some ways. But anyway, let's, let's get back. Where, where were we? We were talking about, um, yeah, so, so I, I'm quite struck by that, 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 uh, I think that human beings fundamentally need a sense of purpose. We all need a sense of deeper purpose and meaning. We, we know we, we we need meaning in our lives, and I think that wokery or intersectionality—it's notable that it's really taken off in the in the Protestant uh, sort of. There's a deep Protestant uh, cultural DNA there, and so what what is it about? Well, it's about uh, we are inherently sinful. We have to um, sort of repudiate ourselves confess our sins become allies um yeah and, and through, lot, there's a lot about guilt as guilt well, and there's, shame, there's guilt yeah. and guilt and shame and we can mm. and through a process of confession and contrition mm. we can become born again as allies uh and that's and, and so so in an increasingly secular world uh where we all still as human beings all of us need a sense of belonging and identity and a meaning in our lives transcendental meaning we all need that really it's not it's noticeable that i think a lot this woke woke career intersectionism replaces the that that kind of calvinist or that protestant script that deep spiritual script that lies at the heart of our, our, ourselves and then obviously we've got these online communities and faith-based. I mean, a lot, a lot of this stuff is really faith-based. You, you, you hear these statements that they're stated as, 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 as an article of political faith. You know, we see it in the trans debates, we see it in the decolonial debates. So it's a, it's a, it's like a political, a political spirituality that replaces our increasingly secular post-Protestant secular Western liberal way of life. I think, I think, I think that's a big part of it. You know, I, I want to get back to um, what you were saying about, you know, the, the backlash against Trump and, and Brexit and the kind of, you know, class element to that. But just on that same point, I guess one of the things that I wonder um, with, you know, my arguments, but also yours and others, is that, you know, can a re-articulation of the importance of liberal values really provide the moral and cultural authority to stand up against 
uh, wokeism and all these other things because clearly you know saying making appeals to freedom of speech or making appeals to universalism um has so far not been effective in holding off and so and i don't i'm not trying to make a kind of god-shaped hole kind of we need religion argument because I, I don't necessarily i don't necessarily buy that i don't know if you do um but i, I guess my question is that is perhaps is there something that comes after liberalism because there is I, I don't know if you've come across post-liberalism and these other discussions that are emerging but my, my question is essentially so far it has failed to um push back successfully against the onslaught of of um, a lot of these ideologies within our institution and therefore is it is it enough even if i can appreciate what it does and what it has done can it can it really confront these things what do you think I think that's a, that's a very tough question, and in some ways, I'd be a mystic Meg and look into look into the crystal ball. Uh, I, I mean, I, I I quite like the. I mean, where we're going now on the post liberal stuff is you have people still arguing for liberalism. You have the post liberals, and we're seeing inflections now on of a return to Christianity, or in some cases, a, a, a movement towards Islam. We saw the you know the tape, and so there is this kind of like reemergence now of of sort of a, a, a religious element to it. Um, I mean, m my position on that would be, uh, I, I don't, it, it's more about the failure of liberal institutions. And I think, I think that, that is the key. I think if you, if you want to have this more robust defense of liberalism, the the institutions within so just this country british institutions they they have to rediscover their sense of purpose they have to discover their sense of leadership i mean even the concept of leadership now is a very kind of it's almost a kind of a nasty concept but I, but i think and that and that's why the book really talks about the universities and, and and the centrality and the importance of the universities returning to however imperfect that those values may be pluralism uh, open inquiry, the, the support of, of of these of these processes, and 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 not imposing new orthodoxies, because minimally, I think minimally, wherever we're at, allowing that free inquiry, wherever it may go, allowing that free inquiry, not persecuting people, not castigating people, not putting people out of the moral community they dare to challenge the dominant orthodox and, and ideology, which is what we're seeing all the time in British campuses now. It's very, a very strong thing. So I, I think that that those things are, are those values and the rediscovery of the telos of, of, of our institutions, especially the universities, is super important. We, we cannot allow those values to be lost. And that's also partly why, you know, there's myself and a few others have worked on the academic freedom legislation. Just, just to sort of create this beachhead upon which we can return or try and defend the, the, these values. So whichever way it goes, these, these are fundamental to, to Western to civilization. Um, so just to go to our final question, and I think that this is, uh, I think one of the most insightful and important um, contributions of the book actually is this uh, question of the relationship between uh, woke and its impact on uh, the West on the world stage. And so could you just elaborate on what you think um, the most corrosive impact of it is and what that's really doing? 
Well, I think the most corrosive impact is, is in, in some senses, this desire to repudiate Western civilization itself and to cast, to see history in a very simplistic way where all history, British history, I'll stick to Britain, we can talk about others, but Britain is just one long litany of oppression, slavery, empire, and colonialism. And, um, and I think what that does, ironically, is it's a form of Eurocentric narcissism. And it's a, you know, we are, we are the baddies. And it's a way of almost attracting attention to yourself. Uh, uh, we're the worst. And, you know, and, and it, it, so it puts you center stage again in a weird kind of way. And I think it's, that's extraordinarily patronizing. Um, because what it, what it does ultimately, not only is it, is it simplistic historically in terms of, its view of non-Western peoples, non-Western histories, and the agency and the dignity of that, in some senses, and, and the complicated nature of that. Uh, but it also, it, it, it kind of, it, it, so it's kind of a, it, it's a false history. It's a false history. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's unfair. And I think that what it does in the present day, it, it's operationalized in the present day to, to, to undermine the confidence of Western civilization. And I think that's quite a dangerous thing because it, it, if you want to ultimately uh, cobble or hobble or kneecap the capacity, capacity for action and you want to undermine the moral confidence, I mean, if you think about an morale in an army is a very important thing, but, but morale in a population is also very important. And, and, and that's based on a belief in oneself, a belief in one's righteousness. Uh, you know, we're on the ultimate, the right side of history. We're doing the right thing. Um, so the undermining of that in the context of the rise of highly illiberal, highly authoritarian civilizational states, we're seeing it, for example, in Russia, in Ukraine, we're seeing it with, with the rise of China. We're even seeing it now, I mean, oddly enough, anti-colonial and post-colonial and decolonial theorists that are supporting Hamas. Now, the left has historically been, the decolonial left has historically supported more secular nationalist forces, especially in the Arab world. But a lot of that, a lot of that stuff's now morphed and become uh, kind of highly Islamist. So when you're supporting this is political spirituality of, of organizations like Hamas, independent of the atrocities that they've committed or, or they, 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 they do commit, these are highly illiberal, bigoted. So if, you, if you're a progressive, an alleged progressive, believing in gender equality, racial equality, uh, equality of all before the law, um, the rights of, of gay people, the rights of oppressed minorities, and you're supporting organizations like Hamas, who are, you know, utterly illiberal and against those values and will kill you. I mean, look, for example, at some of the human rights reports in relation to the Gaza Strip, what's happened to young gay men or gender equality. And to, but to see these people as, as somehow harbingers of, of a progressive future. So, mm. so the point I make in that chapter is that in the absence of the West, and, which is very progressive, you're not going to get, a, you, you, when you de decolonize the West, you're not going to get some, the outburst of a wonderful utopia. What you're going to almost, what you're going to get is what you, you've had throughout most of human history, and that is tribalism and international conflict and alternative empires, mm. alternative civilizational projects that will seek to colonize 
And the values of those projects are often highly problematic, to say the least. Yeah, I mean, as, as the point that you alluded to, you end up uh, with immense moral confusion because you end up justifying and apologising for horrific yeah. acts because yeah. you perceive it to be anti-Western, which is something that they support, anything that's yeah. anti-Western. Yeah. And I think, that, I think that's a really important point. I guess, what, what do we do? Because, as I said earlier, you know, people can stand up for liberal ideals, but we, we need more people. Is there enough? Is there enough people? There's, there's groups and there's organisations and there's thinkers like yourself that have really, you know, burst onto the scene and are undoubtedly shaping and influencing the public conversation. But is that enough? Is my final question. Wow, that's a big one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I think that what we need to do is minimally, I think we need to realise that what we have is pretty good and pretty special. And we should, like a baby, cherish it more and, and learn more about the, the history of it, but the history in all of its complexities. And this simple binary of good and evil, Western evil and the non-Western world's good, the castigation of industrialization and capitalism is inherently wrong and evil and malign. All these things, just, just look at some of the data, some of the metrics on human development. Look at some of the metrics on the, the international conflict. And just to get a, a more rounded sense of, of things. And then once you do that, one hopes that you can begin to appreciate how precious what we have is and wish to defend it more. And, and, and also a lot, there's a, there's a lot of people that, that I guess feel the same way as me. And I, and I, I suspect you too. It's the majority of people. My, people tend to be very decent, good people. You know, they want the best for their poor discrimination, et cetera. Right. So, but, but I, I think just stand up and be counted more. There are there are a few people that have stood up and come out and pushed for legislative change and institutional change, and but but they've taken the slings and arrows of that. I mean, look at Kathleen Stock, for example, and others. They've taken the slings and arrows of of, of that those moves. But more people need to stand up and be counted. Otherwise, um, we 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 are we are. The final point I want to make is this. I, I, I'm a very optimistic person by nature, but I do think we're going into a, a, a new phase, a, 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 an inflection in, in, in the international system. We're seeing it now. So, we, so I think we need to really rediscover ourselves um, and our sense of unity in the face of what, what may come. Thank you so much, Doug Stokes, for joining me. Buy this fantastic book, Against Decolonization, Campus Culture Wars and the Decline of the West. Thank you so much. Thank you, Naya. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to Equiano Pod. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you'd like to see more of our content, all related to tackling the complex questions around race and identity, while of course championing the values of freedom, common humanity and universalism, then why not check out our YouTube channel or consider subscribing to our Substack. Until next time, take care.